You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Started Judges last week. We looked at the first couple chapters and we, we talked about that the major theme of Judges really is found in the last verse of Judges. If you want to flip back there just real quick, the, the last verse of this book kind of sums up the entire Book In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's really the tragedy of this period of Israel's history, is that they did what was right in their own eyes. Not what was right in the eyes of the Lord, not what God had showed them to do, but what they thought was right. It's sort of a, a real analogy and a mirror image of, of where our country's at today and where we're at as a people, really, across the world is that we do what's right in our own eyes. And, and what would we really expect? We were raised to believe that there is no moral standard, that there is no God in which we're accountable to, and so we just do what seems right to us and what makes sense to us. And that's exactly what was happening in this period of, of history in, in Israel's uh, up-and-down history, really. The, the, the history of Israel is, is, is really a roller coaster where they're doing well and everything is going great and then they just take a dive. And we don't have to have that kind of experience with the Lord. Some of us do and it, you know, you see people and man, it's either like they're just doing amazing or they're ready to commit suicide. It's one or the other. You know, it's kind of this real polarizing Christianity where... It's either one extreme or the other. And I don't know that God really wants us to be on one extreme or the other. I think what God would have for us is to be real steady in our walk. And, and just to, to take one step at a time. And, and not to, to have these highs and lows and highs and lows. And you see Jesus in his earthly ministry. And he was real consistent. You didn't see him like just jumping up and down off the walls and, you know, and, and you didn't see him just down in the dumps ready to, you know, cast off the Lord. And, and that's, I think, what we see with the nation of Israel is just these highs and lows and they're doing great and then they're just horrible. And there's really this, this four-step process through the book of Judges that we see. It starts with rebellion and sin and just doing what's right in their own eyes. And then God brings judgment. And, he, and God raises up a, a person, a nation, to judge them. To, to bring punishment to them. And they would be in servitude to that nation for a period of time. And then you would see... The nation, as we're going to see tonight, they cry out to the Lord. They, re they repent, and it, that word repent sort of in quotations because it's not true repentance in the sense that they don't really change, but they cry out to God, and then God raises up a judge, as we'll see throughout the book of Judges, some that you're familiar with like Samson and Gideon, maybe some that you're not so familiar with like Othniel that we'll see tonight. But God raises up a judge, and then God frees them from that tyranny, that slavery that they were under. And then a period of time goes by, 
And then they fall back into their sin and the cycle continues. And sadly, that's where many Christians are at, that same cycle. And it's not where we need to be at all. And so let's launch in. We're going to look at chapters 3, 4, and 5 tonight and uh, trust the Lord's going to speak to us. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formally known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites, who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left, that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. And so there were these nations, there were these peoples that were left in the land by the Lord because they didn't drive them out. And you remember we talked about that last week and we talked about it through the book of Judges that there were all these people that they just didn't feel the need to drive out. They just said, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it was too difficult. We're just going to leave these people here. It's kind of a hassle. We're content with this little bit here, and we're not going to take the whole land that God has given us. A multitude of reasons for that. Laziness, fear, unbelief. The same reasons that we don't drive out the the things in our life that, that God would have us to drive out. And I think we often ask the question, like, Lord, why is it so difficult? Why don't you just drive out all of this sin so I don't have to deal with it? Have you ever thought about that? Like, Lord, how come I can't just be free from this lust? Or, or God, why don't you free me from this anger? Or, Lord, can you please just, you know, make my tongue only say stuff that's edifying? You know? So that I'm not ripping people to shreds and gossiping. And Lord, I hate it, but it's just a part of who I am. And do you ever wonder why it's not just stripped from us? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's pride, arrogance. Maybe it's all of the above. I mean, I I list all those things and I think, yeah, that's me. All those things. I wish all those things were gone. I wish my flesh was gone. And yet the Lord has freed us from the power of sin. But the presence of sin is still here, just like we see with these nations. You remember Joshua was given the command of the Lord to go and to rid Canaan of all of the indigenous people. But it wasn't like they just evaporated. It wasn't like one day they were there and the next they were gone. They had to go and actually physically do the work. But it was already done for them. And so the power of these nations was broken, but the presence of the nation was still there. And it's the same with sin in our life. The power of sin is broken in our life. We don't have to lust. We don't have to lie. We don't have to gossip. We don't have to get angry and blow our top. We used to have to. It was like we were in bondage to it. You didn't really have any choice. If somebody made you angry, you had no choice but to sin. You know how the Bible says, be angry and sin not? And so it's kind of like there's this period of 
of anger where you can be angry but not sin. And that's impossible without the Lord. Without Jesus, when you get angry, you're going to sin. There's going to be mean things said. There's going to be violence. There's going to be stuff thrown across the room, whatever. But as someone with the Holy Spirit, we're not in bondage to that. We're not in bondage to allowing and, may, and having to have the, the lustful thought take root in our life and control us. We're not in bondage to the power of sin, whatever and however it might manifest itself. But the, the ridding of the sin in our life is really left to us. If we're going to give in to those things. We don't have to, but we certainly can, can't we? And just like the, the, the people of Israel had to go in and they had to root out these people, so we have to go in and we have to root out the sin that's in our life. The power's been broken, but we still have the opportunity on a daily basis to give in to the presence of sin. And I believe the Lord, like He left these people there in Canaan, to test them. I think that this is a real testing ground for us to see if we really believe in the Lord or not. Do we really trust in the power of the cross? And and are we going to allow Him to do that work in us? And and so, as we struggle, it, it is doing a work in us. God doesn't make it easy. And I think there's application for us as parents in that as well. Because I think it's our tendency as parents to want to make things real easy on our kids. We want everything to be easier than it was for us. And so we want to pay for everything. We want to stick up for our kids. We want to make a a real easy road for them. Because we don't want to see them struggle. But if we look at our Heavenly Father, He makes things hard on us, doesn't He? He doesn't make it real easy on us. Because He wants us to grow. He wants us to be challenged. And so... As parents, one of the biggest disservices that we can do to our kids is make everything real easy. Because then when they become an adult and things aren't just handed to them and things aren't that easy, we're going to find that we actually did them a disservice rather than what we thought we were doing, which was loving them. In verse 6, it says they took their daughters to be their wives and, and gave their daughters to their sons. Now... This was strictly prohibited in the law. That when they went in to mingle, to take over the land, that they weren't to marry and they weren't to intermarry with, with these other groups. And it wasn't because God is racist. It wasn't because He wanted them to be bigoted. It isn't that God is against interracial marriage. It has nothing to do with it. It was the paganism that He knew would follow. Because God knows that when you give your heart to somebody, their morals, what is a priority to them, will become a priority to you. You will share their morals. And if if they're people that are serving false gods, that's what's going to be passed on to, to those that are marrying them. And that's why God said don't do it. And that's exactly what happened. They intermarried, and then it says they they serve their gods. And you see this happening time and time again in the Old Testament. And so it's nothing to do with racism or bigotry. And the parallel today is simple that God doesn't want us to to marry unequally. And that's why God says to us in his word that as believers, we, we shouldn't marry those who aren't believers. Because 
their beliefs and their priorities and their morals are going to be passed on to us and they will drag us down. And, and that's what we see happening here. They serve their gods. And so in a, a real rapid amount of time, we see the children of Israel victorious and doing well and now they're intermarrying and they're worshiping false gods. And so, verse 7 The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And so they did evil. They forgot the Lord their God, which is a real sad testimony of of a person when they completely forget the Lord. And I think we've all seen people, maybe you've been a person who is just backslidden to the point where you've forgotten the Lord. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter that if we aren't constantly growing and adding to our faith, that there will come a point where we will forget that we've been cleansed and saved from our sins if we're not daily growing. And that's exactly what was happening to them, and it's exactly what can happen to us if we aren't growing in the Lord. And it doesn't take a lot. And it's so sad as a pastor when I watch people sort of fall into that and and they're doing so well and they're serving the lord and and then it, you know what I, I don't have time to serve anymore okay that's cool and and then they start not being at church very often and and then you start to see that there's compromise and then they're not at church at all and then it's well you know don't judge me man i don't have to be in church to be a christian hey nobody said you did it just seems rather odd that you were serving the lord like mad and you were here all the time, and now you're hardly ever here, and in fact, now you're never here. And, and then the compromise turns into full-on rebellion, and, and it leads to who knows what, all kinds of things. And it didn't just happen overnight, and that's really the, the story of the book of Judges, of what sin does in our life, that it takes us further than we wanted to go, It keeps us longer than we wanted to stay. And it takes from us more than we ever intended to give. It seems so alluring. It seems so attractive. It seems like the right thing to do. And yet, it absolutely destroys our life. They forgot the Lord and they began to serve Baal and Asherah. Baal was the male god who was really the the god of prosperity. Whenever they would have issues in their economy or whenever they would have issues agriculturally they would always pray to Baal they would all they would cry out and and figure that they must have offended Baal somehow and Asherah was the female sort of counterpart to Baal and and they would make these little figurines and in these little wooden statues and and that's what they would worship and so they traded in the true and living God the heritage that they were given from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua. The heritage they were given, they, they traded it in for a little figurine that was molded into the image of a bull. That was what they traded it in for. What are we trading the absolute, complete surrender to the Lord for? It may not be the in the shape of a bull or some kind of figurine, but there's all kinds of false gods that we have that are just absolutely meaningless compared to the Lord. Anything 
Anything in your life that has been elevated above Jesus is a false god. It's an idol. And it's got to go. Because it will cause you to forget the Lord your God. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, or that area now known as Iraq. And the children of Israel served them eight years. Eight years they lived in the tyranny and the bondage to this nation because of their rebellion. For eight years they would rather serve Baal and live in slavery than repent and be freed. That's how hard our heart can get. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, finally, eight years, they cry out to the Lord. The the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And so this is Caleb's nephew and also his son-in-law. Remember, we, we learned that last week. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It wasn't his power. It was the the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan, Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over him. And so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And so there was rest. And that's really our choice. We can rest in the Lord... We can rest in in His finished work. We can rest in all of His blessings and the promises of God. Or we can be in slavery and in bondage to our sin. That's the choice we have. And it seems like a no-brainer, but it isn't. Because constantly we're in this war with our flesh. And God just wants us to rest in Him. to, To enter into the joy of the Lord. To enter into all that He has for us. But so often we find ourselves in that period of eight years like the children of Israel where we're rebelling against God. And he wants us to be in that that time of 40 years of rest. It's our choice. So they're in this time of rest. They're being blessed by the Lord. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And so here's this pattern again. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. And so this time it's 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And so take notice that that he's left-handed. That was unusual. In this time, not to be left handed, but that you would continue to be left handed. Because typically, especially a person in any kind of leadership, if you were left handed, they would force you to be right handed. And so, as Samuel or whoever is writing the book of Judges, he he takes note of that. He wants us to notice that he was left handed. And he's sent to give tribute or to give money. Because as they're under servitude to this nation, they would have to pay extreme taxes to to the Moabites. And now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged in a cubit, or a foot and a half in length. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. And so, being left-handed, he would put it on his right thigh to, to grab it. But 
Typically, soldiers and leaders were were all right-handed, and so any weapon that you would have would be on your left thigh. And so as he goes in to, to give tribute and to give money, as they kind of pat him down, they're going to just basically look at his left leg. That's where the weapon would be. They weren't expecting it to be on his right thigh. That's why the writer makes notice of this. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Now when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So he brings this money, he offers it to the king. Now Ehud sends away all the the messengers and the people that had come with him. He sends them away. And he turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And so he, he tells him he's got something something secret for him. This special message just for him. And he, he's, he's trying to manipulate the king into a, a private meeting. And the king said, keep silent. And all who attended him went out from him. And so the king sends everybody out. And so Ehud's plan is working perfectly. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said... I have a message from God for you. So the king arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. This was the message that he had for the king. Even the hilt, or the the end, the handle of the knife, went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Now, some people get real offended, you know, when about certain things. And, man, you know, that's kind of violent or that's kind of crude, you know. But the Bible is filled with graphic details and violence and, and not to excuse uh, inappropriate things. But sometimes I think as Christians, we're so uptight that we kind of forget what the Bible actually says. And then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And so he goes out the back, he leaves the king dead. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So he's, he's relieving himself, we'll give him some time, and uh, you know we'll see what's going on. So they waited till they were embarrassed. So they're out there just thinking like, what is going on? And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key, opened the doors, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And so Ehud, just this regular guy, a left-handed man at that. An uncommon, just 
regular guy that the Lord raises up to, to free these people. And they had rest for 80 years. And you would think that th- they would learn. Okay, we, we've seen this happen before. We've learned our mistake. But that's not what happens at all. Around this same time, there was another judge that God raised up. His name was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. And so Shamgar only gets one verse, and and maybe it's because he was so famous at this time that they didn't really have to, to give a lot of details. Like, everybody knew who Shamgar was. It was like, oh yeah, that guy's awesome. He killed 600 men with an ox goad. An ox goad was, was a pole that was about 8 feet long. And on one end it would have a, a pointy, sharp object that would be used to kind of get the animals going. They would, you know, prick the animals like Paul w- was said to Paul, why are you kicking against the goats? And sometimes the animals would kick backwards into the goad and that wasn't real smart. But on the other end of the goad was, was kind of a plow, kind of a flat-shaped uh, piece of metal that would be used to clean the plow. As they were going through the fields with the ox, if the plow got caked with mud or whatever, they would, they would use that to clean it off. And so it was kind of this double-ended instrument for dual purpose. And Shamgar uses it to kill 600 men. Now, it doesn't tell us if he killed all 600 at once or if it was over his, his whole life. But either which way, the guy was a stud. I mean, that's just all there is to it. And, and I think the, the thing about it that sticks out to me is that God used what was in his hand. This guy is a farmer, obviously, and God just used what was in his hand. The same way that God used the staff that was in Moses' hand. Just a staff. He's a shepherd. What do you have in your hand, Moses? A shepherd's staff. Okay, we'll use that. David, what do you have in your hand, David? I got a sling. Okay, we'll use that. I mean, it didn't really matter. It could have been an M16. It didn't matter. It was what was in his hand. And that's what God used. See, God will use what he's given you. What's in your hand. You don't have to go find something else. You don't have to to reinvent yourself. God wants to use you right where you're at with what's in your hand. You don't need anything else. You don't need to go get smarter. You don't need to, to, to go get prettier or more attractive. You don't need to look like a leader. You don't need to look like somebody people ought to listen to. But that's what we think, right? Oh, I gotta go, I gotta go find this thing so that God can use me. And that's not true. God will use what's in your hand. God will use you right where you're at with the skills and the resources that are available to you. And if we don't believe that, then we have a pretty small God, don't we? If it has something to do with me, then I'm pretty much discounting the Lord. God will use what's in our hand. And that's why 1 Corinthians says that God uses the foolish things of the world. When you read the Bible, does it ever occur to you that God always uses the foolish things? See, Moses wasn't foolish. In fact, Moses was really smart and really capable. And what did God do? He sent him to the desert to get dumb and incapable for about 40 years. Right? 
I mean, Moses was just super eloquent and smart. He'd been raised in just the most Harvard-like upbringing. And then all of a sudden, he became a stutterer. He, he couldn't speak, and Lord, you can't use me. Well, it took 40 years of God humbling him to bring him to that point. And I'm not saying that God uses idiots. I'm just saying that God doesn't use the most talented and what the world would look at and say, that's somebody that God can use. God uses people like me. It doesn't make sense. It's just like, it's got to be the Lord. It's got it's to be Jesus, right? Just like the disciples in the book of Acts. All the erudite, really intelligent Pharisees and Sadducees would look on at the disciples and they would see thousands of people getting saved and following them and packing out their, their little venues. They would see the, the man that was begging at the temple for year upon year getting healed and they're just like, what is going on here? And they, they just said, these guys are uneducated men but they knew they had been with Jesus. That's what I want people to say about me. I don't want people to go, yeah, you know, Ryan is really smart. Or Ryan has got a lot going for him. I want people to say, Ryan has been with Jesus, period. That's it. And so if you're waiting for somehow your life to, to make more sense for you to be used by the Lord, you're going to be waiting a long time. God wants to use what's in your hand right now. God wants to use you right now. Right where you're at, in the circumstances that you're in. He's placed you there for such a time as this. And see, if we wait, and if we're expecting some major cataclysmic change in our life, and then God can use me, we'll miss out on this time right now. God wants to use you right now, right where you're at. And if you're not allowing Him to be because of your excuses, then you will miss out. You will shortchange yourself. Shamgar. Quite the guy. Chapter 4, Deborah. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hogiam. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years, he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. And so here they go again, the cycle once again. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And so God has raised up a woman as the judge of, of Israel. And we see throughout the scriptures that God uses women in, in very uh, key roles, prophetesses and deaconesses, and, and this idea that, that God doesn't use women or that somehow uh, women can't uh, be in positions of leadership just sim simply isn't biblical. Now, we see in the New Testament that there is this one position that of an elder, that of the spiritual authority in the church that we believe and that we see scripturally is not a place that God has raised up women to be in. But throughout the scriptures, we see God using women in the place of leadership and in a place of key roles in 
in nations, in the church. And so we've we, we got to not go to extremes, which, which is what people do. Oh, yeah, the church just oppresses women and, and says that women can't do anything. That isn't true. The Bible doesn't oppress women. The Bible frees women more than any other religious book, if you want to call it that, and I hesitate to call it that. Jesus freed women. Jesus spoke to women when nobody else did. Jesus healed women and he ministered to women. And look at all the women that were around Jesus. It's interesting that at the cross, everybody else fled except the women. And John, and who was the first person Jesus spoke to? Mary Magdalene, a woman who used to be a prostitute. And so when people say these kinds of things, we, we've, got to, we've got to set them straight with the Bible. Here's Deborah, a woman being used by the Lord. And people will say, well, yeah, but God raised up Deborah because there were no men to do it. That's reading into the text. We don't see that. Now, as we read further here, we're going to see that, that Barak was called of God to go and to win a victory militarily. But as far as a judge, God raised up Deborah. We see nothing else indicated here other than that. That Deborah was the judge, that she was sitting there, and that God was using her to counsel people and to lead people. And that's what was going on. And then there was this period where God was going to use Barak militarily. And we'll read about that. And so we're really reading into the text if we say, well, God didn't really raise up Deborah. She just was there because there weren't any men. It's not in the text. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinom from Kedish and Naphtali. This was a city of refuge. And she said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And so she's reminding Barak of the word of God, that God had called him and the troops to go and to fight against this enemy nation, against this army. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hands. So here's the promise. And Deborah's just simply reminding Barak of the word of God, which is a really good thing to do, is just to tell people, you know, isn't this what God said? When you see people screwing up, don't give them your opinion. Don't tell them what you think they ought to do. Tell them what God has said for them to do. That's what Deborah does here. She reminds him of God and of his command and of his word. She reminds him that he said, I will deliver him into your hand. The work has already been done. But listen to how Barak responds. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. And so obviously Deborah is a pretty powerful chick. If you'll go, Deborah, then I'll go. If you don't go, then I'm not going to go. This has nothing to do with men and women necessarily. What it has to do with is that Barak isn't trusting the Lord. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that Deborah's a woman, although she's going to kind of, I think in a sense, sarcastically kind of use that against him. But what the issue is here is that God didn't say to Barak, you're going to need all kinds of help. God said to Barak, I want you and your troops to go and I want you to lead them and I will deliver them into your hand. But Barak doesn't trust the word of God. That's the bottom line. Do we trust God's word? Or do we have to, to have the human element as well? 
And I'm always reminded of the story that, that Pastor Chuck Smith tells of, of the time that he was going through a really, really difficult time financially and they, they didn't have any money to pay the bills and he sat there at like 3 in the morning and he had all the bills laid out and he's, he's just like, Lord, how are we going to pay all these bills? And, and I, I want to say it was like $300 behind and this is like 40 or 50 years ago. And, you know, $300 may have well has been $3 million. And he's just like, Lord, how are we going to pay this? And he sat up all night. And then in the morning, the phone rang. And it was somebody from a church that he used to pastor. And, and they said, hey, Pastor Chuck, we just want to let you know that we, we just put $300 in the mail. And, and it should get to you probably tomorrow. And, and he jumped up and down and he got his wife out of bed and they danced around the house. And they were rejoicing, and then the Lord spoke to his heart and said, You trust the word of man, not my word. I already told you I was going to provide for you, and you sat up all night worried about it. But then in the morning, you get a phone call from somebody, and now you're rejoicing. And that story is so true, isn't it? That we have God's word, but man, we want to hear some confirmation from somebody else. The check's in the mail. And then we rejoice, and God wants us to rejoice in his word. And Barak didn't do that. If you'll go with me, I'll go. If you won't go, I'm not going. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And so it's a little jab, I think. It's a little jab like, God already said he's going to give this nation into your hand. Why didn't he just believe his word? I'll go with you. I got no problem. But the glory's going to go to a woman which was probably good for Barak anyway, to be humbled. But the thing is, as we read that, we think, oh, well, Deborah's going to be the one that God uses. Well, it's actually somebody else, as we'll read. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. She went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree of Zanam, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Haggayim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up or go, for this is the day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted or ran from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots in the, armory, in the army as far as Harasheth Haggayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. And so, again, God, with a ragtag military, defeats this highly advanced military with chariots of iron, just as he promised to Barak. Now, did Deborah have anything to do with this? Did he need Deborah? Absolutely not. But he didn't trust the Lord, and so he, he shortchanged himself in that regard. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of jail. So this general of the army, he gets away and he takes off and he runs to the tent of jail 
the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And these Kenites had separated themselves. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And so they had kind of separated and they had had some peace agreement with this enemy nation. And Jael went out to meet Sisera. So she sees him running by. She knows who he is. She knows he's the, the general of this army. And apparently she and her, wife, her husband were not on the same page as far as their allegiance to this army and to this nation. And she said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. This was a perfect place for him to hide because nobody's going to expect that he would be hiding in the tent of somebody else's wife. And so it was a perfect place to hide. She covers him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, then gave him a drink and covered him. He asked for water. She gives him warm milk, puts him to sleep. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, and so he died. I love that, so he died. You know, it's kind of an understatement. <laughs> but this lady... I mean, as much as Shamgar is a stud, this lady's amazing. I mean, she puts him to sleep with milk, and so she's crafty. And as a, a, a woman of this time, she would have been very adept with a hammer and a tent peg because the, the women of this time were in charge of putting the tents up. You know, ladies, it might be kind of analogous to taking the garbage out. I don't know. But the ladies at that time, I mean, they had no problem putting the tents up. The, the Bedouin women, I mean, they, they just, they would go in, they would set everything up as they would move around. And so this lady was good with the hammer and a tent peg. And she sneaks up to Sisera, puts the tent peg to his temple, drives his head into the ground. I mean, that is, that's movie worthy there. This is Rambo. And he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera... So here comes Barak, he's running after him. Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. So I'm sure Barak's stoked. He's like, good job. And this would have flown in the face of all hospitality rules. I mean, at this time, when you brought somebody into your house, it was a big deal. You were in... You were to feed them, you were to take care of them, you were to protect them. And if they were injured while they were staying with you, that would bring shame to your family. You know, they didn't have homeowner's insurance, you know. If somebody got hurt at your house, that was a big deal. And you would do everything in your power to provide for them and to be hospitable to them and not to take a hammer and a tent peg and drive their head into the ground. This, was, this would have made her a, a shame. She was taking a big risk by doing this, especially since they had had peace with this nation. 
So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And so there was, once again, deliverance. Very quickly, chapter 5. I know we're, we're running a little bit late here. Real quickly, chapter 5. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinom, sang on that day, saying, When leaders lead in Israel... When the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. And so when leaders lead and people follow that leadership, there's a blessing involved in that. And that's true today. When leaders lead, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. And so this is the song of Deborah. It's a, it's a hymn of victory. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. And so we're given some indication that it was not only the power of Israel's army, but it was also a divine intervention here as God poured rain upon this military battle and made it very difficult for them to move their chariots around. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. And so not only did they offer themselves totally to the Lord, but it was willingly done. Bless the Lord. Speak you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinom. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples, from Makir, rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff, and the princes of Ishakar were with Deborah. So Ishakar, as Ishakar, so was Barak sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. The kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought. In Tanak by the waters of Megiddo, they took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. O oh my soul, march on in strength. 
Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. And so this prophecy that God would raise up a woman came to pass, but not through Deborah, it was through Jael. He asked for water, she gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera, she pierced his head, she split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies answered her. Yes, she answered herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil? To every man a girl or two. For Sisera plunder of dyed garments. Plunder of garments embroidered and dyed. Two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years. Amazing stories. Amazing stories of what God can do when we just trust Him. And yet they had these periods of time where they didn't trust Him. And we look to them and we think, why would you worship little figurines? Why would you fall into sin time and time again? And yet we find ourselves doing the very same things, don't we? And what God wants us to do, you guys, afresh and anew, is like Jael went out and got Barak, and she said, look, I want to show you that he's dead. Jesus wants us to be reminded tonight that the power of sin is dead in our life. That we need to look on afresh and anew at the fact that the enemy has been defeated, you guys. We don't have to be in bondage. The power of sin has been broken. Let's stand and pray together. Father, what a, an amazing series of events. What an amazing group of chapters there in Judges. Lord, that just speak to us of the fact that you're in control and that when we trust you, God, it's better. It's so much better for us, Lord. God, help us to to make godly choices this week. Lord, that will draw us closer to you and not further into bondage. Lord, help us to look on At the fact that at the cross you said it's finished, that it's done, it's completed. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. You made a public spectacle of those things, Lord. May we appropriate that truth into our life this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks for listening and God bless.